0: Welcome to a special edition of the L.A. Public Health Podcast for Monday, December 21st, 2020. I'm Steve Baldwin, and today on the show, we're featuring the COVID-19 virtual town hall that took place last Thursday, December 17th. The town hall covered a range of topics, including vaccine development, safety and efficacy, and the plan for vaccine distribution across L.A. County. The town hall is moderated by Dr. Deborah Prothro Stith, who is the Dean and Professor of Medicine at the College of Medicine with Charles R. Drew University, and features LA County Health Officer Dr. Muntu Davis, Chief Science Officer Dr. Paul Simon, and Dr. Sierra Kirian, Director of the Division of Medical Affairs. As a reminder, to keep up with the latest updates and science based recommendations, you can follow us across all social media at LA Public Health or visit our website, publichealth.com. Dot LACounty.gov. And now, without further ado, here's the Department of Public Health's COVID 19 vaccine town hall with Dr. Deborah Prothro Stith.
1: Uh, thank you. Hello, everyone. And thank you for joining us uh, for this virtual town hall on COVID 19 and the vaccine. I'm Dr. Deborah Prothro Stith, Dean and Professor of Medicine for the College of Medicine at Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science. And I'd like to welcome everyone to this town hall. We have three top experts in medicine and science from the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. And they are here to answer your questions about COVID-19 and the vaccine and they're they're going to help us understand what to expect in the coming months as we look to end this pandemic one that has caused so much pain in our communities over the next 90 minutes we will cover important vaccine related topics including the development of the vaccines the distribution process for la county and of course safety, and efficacy, issues that are top of mind. We will begin with a opening discussion by each of our panelists, and that will last for about 30 to 45 minutes. And then we will move on to the questions that we've received and the questions that you asked during this town hall. So far, we've received more than 500 questions ahead of time. So obviously we won't get to all of them, but we're gonna do our best. And as a reminder, during this town hall, you may submit your questions via the chats on Facebook and YouTube, or on Twitter using the hashtag AskCOVIDTownHall. If you'd like to listen to tonight's town hall in Spanish, you can call 888-664-1453. To listen in Chinese, you may call 888-664-1459. And for Korean, call 888-664-1454. Again, I wanna welcome you. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. Our first panelist to speak is Dr. Muntu Davis. He is the health officer for Los Angeles County. Dr. Davis, will you give us your opening remarks?
2: Thank you, Dr. Prothra-Sith. I um, appreciate you opening up this town hall and thank you to everyone uh, who has joined and listening virtually. Um, I want to start by just going over a little bit of what's happening in Los Angeles County uh, and uh, we'll get to further uh, details about vaccine uh, and get to your questions as well. So, as many of you know, Los Angeles County is in the middle of a terrible surge in COVID-19 cases. Every day we're setting records for the number of new cases, for the number of people being hospitalized for COVID-19, and tragically for the number of people who have died. On average, we're losing up to two of our neighbors every hour in Los Angeles County. This surge is putting a tremendous strain on our hospital network, and more importantly, on the frontline healthcare workers who are doing everything they can to save lives under extraordinary conditions. By this weekend, and probably by tomorrow, we'll likely have more than 5,000 patients hospitalized with COVID-19 and half of our ICU beds occupied by COVID-19 patients. As everyone knows, this surge, both in Los Angeles County and what the rest of California is experiencing, has prompted new health officer orders and state restrictions to slow the spread of the virus uh, transmission. We also ask everyone to help stop this surge by using the tools we all have and we all know how to use. We encourage everyone to just stay at home as much as possible and only go out for work, exercise, and essential services. When you must leave your home, always wear a face covering and stay at least six feet away from people you don't live with. Now, let's talk about this week's uh, promising news, the arrival of the COVID-19 vaccine. Our first shipment received this week contains more than 82,000 doses. These are being used to vaccinate frontline healthcare workers, prioritizing those at highest risk of exposure to COVID-19. Dr. Kurian will discuss in more detail the distribution plan, but I want to emphasize that while the arrival of a vaccine offers us some hope for the future, that we are still many months away from having enough people vaccinated to see COVID-19 virus begin to diminish to a point that we begin to see, see things return to normal which means that we all have to continue to follow those personal actions in order to prevent getting and transmitting COVID-19. The general consensus in the public health community is that we need to achieve uh, vaccination of between 75 and 85% of the US population in order to to see this virus begin to go away. Um, This would be what is called herd immunity uh, through immunization. We can do this. We can eradicate this virus. Uh, we did this with smallpox. We achieved this with measles. We can do this with, COVID, with the COVID-19 vaccine. I want to emphasize that it will take months for a COVID vaccine to be widely available to the general public. In the meantime, again, we must all do our part and remain diligent and keep taking the steps to stay safe and protect our families and our neighbors. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Davis. Um, I have um, questions on my mind that people have asked me and I think we will get to them, but those were great opening remarks to set the stage. I'd now like to introduce Dr. Paul Simon. He is the public health's chief science officer. Dr. Simon.
3: Thank you and good evening, everyone. I'm very glad to have the opportunity to share with you some information about the COVID-19 vaccines. As you've probably heard, the first vaccine was approved by the FDA late last week. This vaccine, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, was studied in a clinical trial of more than 4,000 volunteers and found to be 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 infection. The trial included persons 16 years of age and older. Very importantly, the vaccine was found to be effective across all age groups, across all racial and ethnic groups, and among both men and women. The vaccine was also deemed to be safe for use after careful review by an advisory panel to the FDA. This safety was confirmed with an additional review by a vaccine advisory committee of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. While no safety issues were identified, the results of the trial indicate that many persons who were vaccinated vaccinated developed mild to moderate symptoms for up to several days, including such things as soreness at the site of injection, fatigue, muscle aches, and fever. These symptoms were not surprising and are similar to what's experienced with many other vaccines. A second vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, is very close to approval. In fact, the FDA's advisory committee met earlier today to discuss the results of the Moderna clinical trial, which included more than 30,000 volunteers. We are hopeful that the vaccine will be approved very shortly. The Moderna vaccine was also found to be approximately 95% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19 infection and was not associated with any serious adverse effects. Like the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine did produce short-term mild to moderate symptoms in many persons who received the vaccine in the clinical trial. The Moderna vaccine was tested in persons 18 years of age and older. As with the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine requires two doses, but the doses need to be spaced four weeks apart, while the Pfizer vaccine requires spacing three weeks apart. Several important questions remain about these two vaccines. First, how long does protection last once vaccinated? The two vaccine trials only follow participants for approximately two months uh, following vaccination. The second question is whether the vaccines prevent asymptomatic infection and spread of the virus to others. The vaccines will continue to be carefully studied as they are rolled out to answer these two questions as well as other study questions. They will also be carefully monitored for any safety issues and to ensure the absence of rare side effects. In the very early results of the rollout of the Pfizer vaccine, several cases of severe allergic reactions, known as anaphylaxis, have been reported in England, with one case also reported in the U.S. This will be very closely monitored as vaccines ramp up over the coming weeks. Out of an abundance of caution, anyone with a past history of an anaphylactic reaction to any of the components of the Pfizer vaccine should delay vaccination. In addition to the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, several other candidate vaccines are in the late stages of evaluation, and we are hoping may be eligible for approval early next year. While the availability of multiple vaccines may complicate the logistics of our mass vaccination efforts, it will also help ensure that we have an adequate supply of vaccine to vaccinate the millions of persons needed to prevent ongoing spread of the virus, often referred to as herd immunity, as Dr. Davis mentioned. I know some persons may have concerns about the COVID-19 vaccines, given how rapidly they were developed. I want to assure you that although the timeline for developing and evaluating these vaccines have been greatly condensed, all of the essential steps in the vaccine approval process have been maintained. In addition, three expert panels of scientists, one for the FDA, one for the CDC, and one convened by Governor Newsom and governors of three other Western states all completed independent reviews of the data from the Pfizer clinical trial and concluded the vaccine was effective and safe for use. A similar process is underway with the Moderna vaccine and will be repeated for other vaccines submitted for approval. I'll now turn it back over to Dr. Protho-Stin. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Simon. Thank you, Dr. Simon. It's um, now my pleasure to introduce our third uh, panelist, uh, Dr. Sarah Curion, who is one of the leaders in LA County for the vaccine planning efforts. Uh, we are looking
4: forward to hearing from you, Dr. Curion. Thank you, Dr. Uh, and welcome to everyone who's joined us tonight. In describing our county's planned initial vaccination efforts, I want to first highlight what may seem like the obvious that this will be a massive undertaking, the scale of which many would argue is unprecedented given the time urgency of vaccinating millions of people in the county and beyond. I'll share some details about the first shipments. Um, Here in Los Angeles County, we did receive our first shipment of the Pfizer vaccine this week. Uh, This first shipment accounted for 82,875 doses and are being used to vaccinate healthcare workers with the priority being healthcare workers who are at the highest risk of exposure to COVID-19. And you may hear some people refer to this as our Phase 1A distribution, which is aligned with the CDC and state recommendations. After Phase 1A, which will also include residents and healthcare workers at long-term care facilities, we will start Phase 1B vaccination efforts, which is expected to be focused on essential workers followed by phase 1C, which is expected to be focused on high-risk groups, including seniors and those with chronic health conditions. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which provides recommendations to the CDC on vaccines, will be meeting this Sunday to make decisions about who should be considered in these next phases. Plans are also currently being developed for how individuals within these broad groupings will be prioritized and how the vaccines will be delivered to them. This planning is occurring in close coordination with the state health department, the local healthcare community, and many other community partners. I'm very proud of how nimble my public health colleagues, hospitals, and our partners at EMS have been in standing up the distribution system and adjusting to the various challenges that creating such a complicated system can pose. In addition, we have over 100 people on a task force from 50 different organizations That have been assisting with plans and everyone involved has taken extraordinary measures to ensure that these vaccines are distributed in a safe, equitable, and effective way. The way this initial process works is that we've designated nine key storing and distribution sites, some of which are acute care hospitals themselves. These sites have both the ability to store vaccines at the proper temperature and are spread out throughout the entire county, to ensure equal and easy access to a number of acute care hospitals that are receiving vaccine from these hubs and then administering the vaccine to their healthcare workers in this first round. These nine distribution points are making arrangements with their receiving hospitals for careful pickup of vaccine doses, which are timed to, an ensure, to ensure an orderly pace of vaccinations. We are expecting to get a second shipment of vaccines next week, and we expect these doses will enable us to continue to vaccinate additional frontline healthcare workers and emergency medical services personnel, as well as residents at skilled nursing facilities. This is a dynamic situation, and we know that there may be bumps along the way, but our commitment is to ensure vaccines are distributed in a fair and equitable manner. Access to vaccinations is and will remain our priority. At this time, I don't have all the answers, like exactly when we expect to finish with our first key rounds of vaccinations and begin to make this available to the general population. Much of this depends on how many more vaccines are approved and the production schedules of the different manufacturers, along with many other variables. Our best estimates at this time are that the general public vaccinations will be available possibly in the spring or early summer. Our vaccine task force has established three committees that meet weekly. One focused on ensuring equitable distribution of the vaccine, another on establishing effective communications and the third on aligning resources. We encourage you to keep checking our website, follow us on social media and subscribe to our email newsletter and look for other updates and we will do everything we can to keep you informed. We also know some of you may be hesitant about this vaccine We hear you and we will keep sharing the facts, the data and the science about the COVID-19 vaccines. Thank you.
1: So thank you, Uh, Dr. Dr. Tyrion. We are uh, ready to start answering questions. I want to remind our audience that you may send your questions via the chat boxes on Facebook. YouTube and on Twitter. On Twitter, you use the hashtag ask COVID town hall. So um, we do have our pre-asked questions and we can start there but I'm going to take a little bit of the moderator privilege here uh, and ask Dr. Curian to help us uh, understand how um, zip code and neighborhood data will be used in the distribution. We know that the mortality rates from COVID-19 and the infection rates vary widely by zip codes. And those with higher rates of people living in or below poverty levels really are at higher risk. How is that factored in as the groups consider the
4: distribution? Um, so, so, thank you for asking. So yes, there is a variety of different factors that are considered in um, determining who gets uh, the vaccine and how it's distributed among the different healthcare hospitals for this very first round that we had. So um, absolutely, as I mentioned, equity was, is a consideration and it's sort of in the forefront of uh, the decisions that we make. And so uh, prioritizing uh, and understanding which communities are most impacted uh, and especially those uh, hospitals and facilities that are serving vulnerable populations are part of the calculus that we use in determining how to distribute these uh, these doses.
1: Thank you. Um, Dr. Davis, I'm gonna ask you our first question here. Um, which is, can I sign up somewhere, uh, put my name on the list? How will I know when the vaccine is available for me?
2: Well, you can be sure that, you know, there'll definitely be widespread notices in terms of public information regarding uh, when the vaccine is available and where you can get it. Uh, In the meantime, what I would suggest is uh, for people to go to uh, our website publichealth.lacounty.gov. That's publichealth.lacounty.gov. Um, and then when you get to um, the COVID-19 pages or a link for that, there is a page that is specifically for vaccine, and you can sign up for a newsletter using your email so that you can get COVID-19 vaccine updates. Uh, you know, as we start to change things and and more news comes about. Uh, but I can guarantee you that your providers will know when it's available and they'll tell you. Uh, We'll tell you through public uh, media and public messaging. uh, And also, again, you can sign up for this email to get updates uh, as things are changing as we move forward.
1: Thank you. Um, Dr. Simon, the next question is for you. Will a vaccine be available for people under the age of 16? What happens is if the rest of our family gets vaccinated but our children don't? Are they at risk of infection? How do we protect our children?
3: Great questions. Um, So the current vaccine trials focus just on adolescents and adults. But as these vaccines are rolled out, there will be continued studies happening. And in fact, the, the trials will be expanded to include other groups. Children, pregnant women is another group that was not studied well in these in these trials. So we will get additional information. Things are moving very quickly. Um, now we do know that children, even if a vaccine is available, would probably be prioritized uh, below many groups of adults because they're at lower risk, uh, slightly lower risk of infection and definitely at lower risk of, of complications. The important point I think in terms of protecting children is to continue to do all of these things that we've been talking about for the last number of months, which is to uh, ensure that face coverings are used when you're out and about with others outside your family or household. And in addition to make sure that, that you continue to physically distance from others, uh, those are the best measures to, to protect children.
1: And the follow-up question here to you, uh, Dr. Simon, is will the vaccine keep me from getting sick?
3: Well, the studies indicate that the vaccine seems to be very effective in preventing uh, uh, COVID-related illness. Again, though, it's not entirely clear if the vaccine prevents asymptomatic infection. But again, we will study that over the coming months to determine it. But very importantly, it's looking very promising that the vaccine uh, prevents illness. And while the numbers were very small in the in the clinical trials, it, it did suggest that the vaccine's effective at preventing severe disease.
1: So Dr. Davis, a follow-up uh, even to that question is, um, and in another question, uh, can I get sick and transmit the virus to my household? I am a healthcare provider and have a six-month-old at home.
2: So, if we're if the question is related to if you if you're getting the vaccine, no, this is not um, this is not the vac the virus itself. Um, you know, this is really. Uh, something that is produced by the virus, but once it's in your body it produces the antibodies which will fight off the virus if, if you get infected. Uh, so it's not uh, that you get this vaccine uh, like uh, some of the previous vaccines that were live uh, but weakened in influenza virus that you got sprayed in your nose. It's not like that at all. So this is not the virus that you're getting uh, in terms of this vaccine. So you should not be able to transmit from the vaccine. Uh, to anyone in your household or to anyone else at all, because you don't have the virus from the vaccine.
1: So that was the question, thank you. Um, Dr. Kurian, you answered this in your uh, opening remarks um, and it was implied in the question that I asked you, but it's worth because it is here again as a question. How can we be sure that distribution is fair? that people with or privilege won't get access ahead of schedule?
4: So, yes, that's a, a really good question. So um, part of the work that's been done in, in sort of understanding and defining who gets vaccine, um, as I mentioned, there was a lot of different factors that were taken into account. And, And this was done at the federal level and then um, also at the state level and then followed up by us here at the local level accounting for additional factors that are relevant to LA County. Um, But there are very specific priority groups that are outlined. So even within the healthcare worker uh, priority group, which is in uh, phase 1A, there are certain tiers that exist to further subdivide that group. Um, So we'll be working specifically with those facilities that employ these individuals to help them understand what the process is in terms of identifying who those priority healthcare workers are. We put out guidance. We have almost daily if not multiple times a day conversations with these facilities so that they clearly understand um, who they're supposed to be accounting for and delivering this vaccine to. Um, And so by giving them that information and really helping them and guiding them through that process, uh, we are trying to avoid having folks sort of jump the line uh, and get vaccine because it is uh, pretty controlled.
1: So as a follow up, there is a question specifically about the healthcare workers that are not at the top of the uh, list to receive vaccine first. Um, such as those in urgent care centers uh, who provide home health care, or who are doctors' offices,
4: um, how will they get vaccine? Um, so yes, thank you. So again, because we're dealing with such limited doses right now, uh, we do have to have some sort of a priority uh, process so we can identify those who are at most risk of being exposed to COVID-19 so that they can get the vaccine first. So within that healthcare community, um, we've identified folks that are working, for example, in acute care hospitals, emergency rooms, ICUs, places where they're having very frequent contact with COVID-19 patients as some of the highest priority individuals that we should try and vaccinate right now. Um, but as we move through that very top tier of phase 1A, which you know it, it includes acute care, psychiatric correctional facility hospitals, our EMS providers and the long-term care facilities, uh, we will move then into tier two, uh, which is where we have captured all of the providers that provide services in outpatient settings, um, like our federally qualified health centers, our urgent cares, Um, and other outpatient settings. Um, And this is also where you would see um, home health care providers fall. Great, thank you. Um, Dr.
1: Davis, this is actually a follow-up to uh, an earlier question um, that um, you answered about information dissemination. Uh, This is specifically what's being done to ensure everyone receives information about access to vaccines, especially non-English speaking audiences, immigrant populations, et cetera.
2: That's a great question and, uh, you know, we are working with and will continue to work with and hear from community partners uh, who are already working with um, the populations you mentioned. On how best to get information out, uh, you know, to to their, their their populations that they work with, um, we may be working through them as well to provide them with information. Uh, we are having materials translated in various languages uh, to ensure that everyone uh, can read through material if that's the best way for them to get it. Uh, but we're definitely going to have to work through uh, community partners as well as healthcare providers uh, to get information out through all the various mechanisms. Uh, that can be used, whether it's social media, whether it's a message from directly from your provider, whether it's from your health plan, or just from a community based organization that you already frequent for you know other services. Um, so we'll continue to work with uh, groups that can tell us how best to reach the communities they're uh, you know most uh, focused on uh, that you mentioned.
1: Thank you, um, Dr. Simon, besides allergies, Are there any other conditions like being a diabetic um, that we should be concerned about with this vaccine? Should breastfeeding mothers take the vaccine? Is Bell's palsy a possible side effect of the vaccine?
3: One of the things that was very exciting, I think about these first two vaccine trials is that the vaccine seemed to work very well in all groups, including persons with various chronic conditions. And and that's very important because those are the folks that are at greatest risk for severe illness if they become infected. So uh, I would encourage uh, everyone, regardless of whether they have chronic health conditions to consider um, taking the vaccine. Now, the question of women who are breastfeeding is, and I would say an unanswered question at this point. The the studies were not designed to address that question. And so I think uh, the decision to be vaccinated uh, among women who are breastfeeding needs, needs sort of to be made on a case by case basis. I think really it's up to the woman with good information from the provider weighing what level of risk she is at. Uh, versus the you know the potential benefit uh, of the vaccine. Um, Bell's pa- palsy has gotten a fair amount of um, uh, po- coverage in the media because the Pfizer trial found that four individuals who were vaccinated did develop Bell's Bell's palsy. And Bell's palsy, for those who don't know, is a is a neurologic condition. It's a nerve condition uh, in which the the nerve in the face, the facial nerve becomes inflamed and can cause weakness on one side of the face. Occasionally it's on both sides of the case uh, of the face. It's not well understood, all the various things that cause this condition. The important point is that for the vast majority of people with Bell's palsy, uh, they do get better. But the vaccine trial could not determine definitively if, uh The vaccine was associated with increased risk of bell's palsy, so this is certainly something we're going to watch very closely again as the as the vaccine gets rolled out
1: um, Dr. Davis, there are um a couple of questions about um the second dose and the planning and I guess both you and Dr. Curion should uh weigh in to answer the question. Uh, What will be done to ensure people get the second dose? Will contact tracing be used to ensure this?
2: Uh, Dr. Corrine, do you want me to take it?
4: (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't unmute myself fast enough. No, I'm happy to take that. (laughs) Um, So, yes, yeah, thank you for asking. So, you know, this is definitely an important consideration because both the vaccine that's being used right now, which is a Pfizer vaccine, and then the second one that we're expecting to uh, start using next week, uh, which is the Moderna vaccine, do require a second dose. Um, So the registration tool that most of the locations uh, will be using to register patients and record the vaccination will generate an email reminder to come in for that second dose. Um, in addition, we are partnering with Health Lana, which um, was a company that the county has already uh, worked with uh, in the delivery of COVID-19 test results to help us with our vaccination effort as well. So Health Lana will help to provide a digital record of the vaccination and also text reminders to come in for a second dose. Um, in, in addition to that, patients are also going to be given the option to sign up for Be Safe. Which is a program that sends out text messages to check for any side effects to the vaccine, but this program also sends out reminders to come in for the second dose. So there's actually multiple methods that are going to be in place to help remind patients to come back. Um, It is important to just sort of note though that folks should keep a record of that first dose and bring that information back with them when they come for the second dose because uh, it's important to get both doses from the same manufacturer. So if your first dose was with the Pfizer vaccine, your second dose should also be with the Pfizer vaccine.
1: Excellent. Um, Given how well the county responded by setting up testing sites, um, people have great expectations around uh, the distribution of the vaccine. I just want you to know that Dr. Curian and Dr. Davis and Dr. Simon we have great expectations of you and I am feeling more and more confident each minute here. Um, one question for you, Dr. Simon, uh, should I get vaccinated if I, even if I've already had uh, COVID-19, if I've already tested positive for COVID-19?
3: Great question. The answer is yes. <clears throat> Those who've had past infection are still encouraged to be vaccinated. However, if we do run into a shortage, um, we would recommend then that those who've had documented infection in the past 90 days delay getting vaccinated because there's fairly good evidence that one has good protection following infection for at least 90 days.
1: And another for you, Dr. Simon here, Besides Pfizer and Moderna, what other vaccine makers um, is the county looking
3: at using? Well, we're we're tracking along with many others, the various vaccines that are in the pipeline, Um, the Centers for Disease Control, certainly the FDA, and we're working very closely with the California Department of Public Health. So we would not make a unilateral decision regarding this, but there are several other vaccines that are pretty far along in the evaluation process. For example, uh, there's a vaccine called AstraZeneca, which was developed in partnership with the University of Oxford, uh, that is fairly well along in, 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 in its uh, vaccine trials, uh, a, a vaccine by Johnson and Johnson, another one by a company called Novavax. And so uh, we're, we're again watching with hope, uh, because uh, we know that if we can get, you know, several products approved that we know are effective and safe that we will have more confidence that we'll have the supply of a vaccine uh to meet the need and of course you know to reach that level of herd immunity obviously we're going to have to vaccinate millions of people
1: truly this is something that um i'm sure you guys are working on hourly i won't even say daily i think it's uh, hourly uh, dr davis there's a question here uh regarding um the the plans and again i imagine you uh, dr Curion could uh weigh in on this um, but it is, are there plans to set, and it, and, and sort of reminds me of my testing site, you know, congratulatory, uh, comment as well. Are there plans to set up county run COVID vac- vaccination sites? Or will this mainly be distributed through private healthcare networks?
4: Oh, sorry again. I'm sorry with the mute. I'm not sure why. <laughs> Some challenges there. I'm happy to take that question. So um, the the goal really is to try and use existing mechanisms for vaccine delivery as much as possible. So clinics, pharmacies, all the places that folks would normally go in order to get vaccines. In these initial months, as we try to get vaccines out quickly, though, to everyone. We know that one single strategy is not gonna work for all populations or for all facilities. So we will be employing various methods and working with community partners and with our pharmacies to get vaccine out quickly. But we're also preparing uh, to help support facilities that might need some assistance with with vaccinations with uh, what we're calling strike teams. And these teams are basically made up of uh, small teams of staff that can go out on site and vaccinate individuals or provide other technical support. So as we move into the phases that really encompass larger populations like essential workers, we do see the potential for possibly setting up larger pods or points of dispensing that can support large numbers of individuals coming to a location to get vaccinated. But because this is all occurring during an ongoing pandemic, uh, we are looking at models that will really allow for mass vaccination, that still supports some of the really critical infection control practices that we still want everyone to practice, such as keeping a distance of six feet from others and wearing a face covering. Sure. We're doing is looking at models for, um, for example, that include the option of you know, a drive up vaccination where individuals can maybe remain in vehicles while getting their shot and then for the 15 minutes after the shot while they are under observation. But as a, you know, of course, the long run, the vaccine strategy really is gonna be focused on integrating into the larger healthcare system, just like it is for other vaccines.
1: Thank you. Um, obviously, that has to be part of what you're considering. Um, in our, at our testing site, when at Charles Drew, when we had, um, uh, the opportunity to call those who tested positive, 30% reported no healthcare home, no source of healthcare. So in addition to the private healthcare network, I'm I'm really pleased to hear that those kinds of considerations uh, are being made. Uh, The other thing we learned is everybody didn't have a car. So when we allowed walk ups at our sites, um, we started getting an additional population. So I'm sure these are the things that you are considering. One of the other questions here, um, and I'm going to throw this one to Dr. Davis, but it's really something the three of you probably could answer. Um, How are the decisions being made regarding distribution? Uh, Are you meeting every morning in a huddle? Are you meeting all day? I had a meeting the other day with some county people and they couldn't come because they were on a COVID. Call, but how are you organizing the decision making?
2: Uh, I started, but, but definitely Dr. Kurian can um, <laughs> you know, take charge on this one. Um, first off, I, I do wanna say that as uh, people think about how these vaccines get prioritized, it starts at the, the federal level. So uh, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, which does the recommendations for all of the vaccines that are given on a routine basis to children and adults, you know, looks at this, reviews it and says, here's the group that we recommend it be used for. Uh, then the CDC looks at that recommendation, signs off on it, uh, and then those prioritization uh, levels come to the state and the state looks at it and says, how much do we have? Does this work for our jurisdiction? And then puts it down to us at the local level. Um, so that's the on the prioritization side. Um, but Dr. Curran, do you wanna talk specifically about the distribution strategy?
4: Sure, yes. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so exactly like Dr. Davis mentioned, um, there there is a very clearly outlined process for determining who's sort of eligible for vaccines. Uh, In terms of the distribution decisions, um, yes, it sometimes does feel like we're in a a long meeting all day long (laughs) um, about various things. But um, in in terms of determining which uh, which facilities get how much vaccine, uh, it, it again is influenced by a lot of factors. Um, some of which I mentioned uh, at the sort of opening of this town hall. So things like, you know, which facilities are serving the greatest proportion of vulnerable individuals in their catchment area, having the highest number of vulnerable staff. But we also consider some logistical factors like which facilities uh, have the ability to properly store that vaccine, how quickly they can go through that supply of vaccine. Uh, and then based on this information, our vaccine preventable disease control program within the Department of Public Health will propose certain allocation of doses for the various facilities. These decisions are then reviewed by our department's policy team, where they have an opportunity to really assess whether those uh, distribution uh, proposals are, um, are appropriate and equitable. And only once that happens are they sort of finalized and instituted. Thank you. Thank you for the work as well as for the
1: answer. Um, Dr. Simon, um, one question here is, can you explain how it is it being the COVID-19 vaccine is different from other vaccines? What is messenger RNA? What is mRNA? Uh, So that is one of the questions we have here.
3: Boy, a technical question here,
1: oh, oh, take us back to medical school. <laughs>
3: yes. Challenge challenging us. Um, so the RNA is the genetic material in this virus and messenger RNA is really the mechanism by which that genetic material. Uh, replicates what's really interesting about the development of this vaccine, though, is that it doesn't include the actual genetic material from the virus. It's the genetic material, the RNA that is synthesized in a laboratory. So it's a replicate really of the genetic material in the actual virus. And that's what's in the vaccine when it's injected into a person that synthetic RNA travels to the cells of the body, enter the cells, stimulates the cells to produce a particular protein that is on the surface of the coronavirus And when that protein uh, leaves the cell, the the body produces antibody against that protein. So in a way, it's tricking the body to produce antibody that then is very effective in attacking the virus uh, and, uh, and is helpful in, again,
2: preventing infection. Now, I want to clarify on this because I know as we start to talk about genetic ma- material, people are going to think, oh, is this going to change my DNA makeup um, <laughs> and it, it does. It's not that um, RNA is uh, genetic material that's used to make proteins. Um, so it, this RNA uh, vaccine does not go into the nucleus or the DNA of your cells. So it's not going to do that at all. Um, it's really just there to, to tell the body, make this particular protein that the body then develops an immune response to. Uh, and then after that, it breaks down that RNA uh, once it's finished making that protein. So it's not not something that's gonna stick with you in that regard.
3: Yeah, it actually gets broken down very quickly within a day or two <laughs> that uh, genetic material gets broken down.
1: So it's like tricking the body, um, making it think it had COVID, but it didn't have the disease, but takes the next step of building the antibodies uh, as if it had been infected. Um, So it's, um, it's exciting to know that the vaccine is here to know that it is safe. Um, I do have a follow up question for you, uh, Dr. Simon. uh, And it is, (laughs) why does it take so long to manufacture the doses?
3: Well, that's interesting. It's all a matter of perspective. Um, we did this in lightning speed. I, I think at the very beginning, no one really quite believed, at least those in the scientific community, quite believed that we could do it this rapidly. But fortunately, there were several companies that had been preparing platforms to develop mRNA vaccines for quite some time. So this was a perfect opportunity, and they actually began immediately in January when the when the genetic sequence of the virus was was identified, they began working on a vaccine. And so uh, relative to normal times it's really been uh, quite a short timeline. But manufacturing a vaccine is is really complex. Um obviously there have to be very, very um rigorous quality control standards. Mm -hmm. And uh, then to manufacture, you know, the volumes needed to vaccinate, again, hundreds of millions of people just take time. And, uh, you know, we're balancing the need for speed with also the need for great care to make sure that the vaccine is safe as well as being effective.
2: Well, I think one thing to add to that, um, you know, this is a, a a different process and, you know, if it's if it's got to be grown in the egg, that takes a, a longer period of time to do that. Uh, but I also want to say that, you know, as these vaccines uh, are getting uh, authorization, uh, many of them have already produced, uh, you know, millions of doses uh, that are just waiting uh, for approval to be sent out. Um, so, Fortunately, in this one, it's not like they're getting approval and then all of a sudden now we're going to start production. Mm -hmm. Um, So there is vaccine that will be coming shortly after uh, it's authorized, much like the Pfizer doses. And I'm sure that the production of it will start to grow over time uh, when more and more vaccine will be available, but many of them have already been in production.
1: Um, This uh, last question of those that we received uh, ahead of time and we're looking to receive some by chat here um, is uh, for you, Dr. Davis. Um, Why don't we just lock everything down until the vaccine is ready? I don't feel safe leaving the house, but I still need to because I work in higher education.
2: You know, it's a that's a great question. And, and uh, oftentimes many of us in public health um, have gotten that that response just shut everything down. Um, you know, when you do things like that, and, um, you know, they're there for a long time. And many of you have seen this, you know, with the orders that we've had, even when it didn't shut everything down. You know, there are also other you know economic and social impacts that come with that. Um, and we try to use uh, our best public health knowledge and understanding of how to slow the spread of disease and allow as many things to happen as possible with modifications to make them safer in that regard. Um, so the recommendations in terms of wearing your face coverings and keeping away from others, et cetera, uh, are important to do. And in no situation uh, where things get locked down does everything ever get just locked down. Um, much Many parts of our society um, need to continue to operate in order for all of us to survive. Whether that's your grocery stores, whether that's your food producers, uh, whether that's your bankers, uh, et cetera, or your healthcare workers, those things are the basics that we need. Uh, so, up to this point, we have been trying to do as much as possible to allow as many things as possible to operate in a safe manner and where they can't, in the normal manner, modify those. Uh, so, it's a, it's a big entail to say shut down everything. Um, you know, if these cases continue to go up related to hospitalizations, Maybe we'll get to that point where more things are starting to close based on the state order uh, in order to protect our healthcare system. Uh, but we really want and need everybody to follow those action steps. You, your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your coworkers, everybody needs to do that no matter what we do. If those things aren't followed, even as we start to get vaccine rolling out, it won't be at, an, at a high enough level. We're still going to need that protection uh, and uh, we're still going to need to see uh, how much this vaccine prevents even asymptomatic infection and transmission. So everybody needs to follow those steps. We need to do that uh, in order to get to this point uh, that we have many more people immunized uh, so that we have what we call herd immunity. Um, But it's a big entail to do that, but it it is something that we consider, uh, but we try not to have to do that because it does have it disrupt a lot of society.
1: I think that's an important uh, point because uh, for some of us who can work from home and continue to get paid, you know, the shutdown is an inconvenience. Uh, For others of us, it has been, you know, the loss of a livelihood, um, homelessness, um, real concern about where the next meal is coming from. So, weighing the the risk and the benefits of each strategy um, is um, is something I know you guys don't take lightly and you do uh, regularly, but um, I think this pandemic has caused us to appreciate how interdependent we are as a society, and um, you know for all the hurt and the pain. You know, if that can motivate us in, you know, this next year to do some things differently, I think we will uh, have learned a good lesson. Uh, We do have one question. Um, It's for um, either, for any of you. Um, Why can't we hang out with friends or family if we get a test and don't have COVID? it's hard to stay home all the time. I won't ask how old that person is, but uh, (laughs) the younger you are, the more difficult it is to just stay at home, I think.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but, you know, by nature, we're, 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 most of us are social beings and, you know, being uh, in contact, um, especially with others who we don't live with is, is part of our normal practice. It's part of our happiness. It's, it's, it's part of our, our livelihood. Um, unfortunately, um, in this instance, even if you tested negative, um, and we've seen this in very famous examples, um, you can turn out positive later on in the day. So that test that you took um, was negative at that moment, even though you could have still had the infection or you may still have the infection. And later, that test will be positive, uh, which means that you would be transmitting to someone else and not have known. Um, Which is why at this point, given that we're having, you know, over 10,000 cases a day, the numbers of people that are out there that may not have known that they were infected before they got their test that was positive and the interactions that they could have had with others in that close contact could have transmitted to someone without even knowing. So it really is a negative test doesn't necessarily mean that you're negative completely. It means that your test was negative at that moment. Um, so, we really do have to maintain those strategies, and we'll get to this point where we don't have as many cases. You remember back in September, we were less than 1,000 cases a day. That's a few months ago. And so, the habits that we that have been gone where you know, people have gotten it together, because that's the basic of this disease, you're in close contact with someone who is infected, whether they know it or not, and it transmits. Uh, you know, uh, when you're in that close contact for more than 15 minutes. So, until we get to that point where there really aren't that many infections, uh, until we get to that point where there is good herd immunity, um, you know, there's that risk that that negative test was only negative for that moment and turn will turn out positive the next day or later on that day.
1: Thank you. Um, Dr. Simon, this next question from the chat is for you. Did the trial for Pfizer and Moderna include people of color? Did it include those with a compromised immune system? So a two part question there.
3: And the answer is yes to both. Uh, The the researchers worked very, very hard to recruit a a diverse population of uh, individuals because we, we, we knew how important it would be to understand how well the vaccine works across a broad swath of you know of our population and because communities of color generally have been more severely impacted by the pandemic uh, we know that it will be extremely important to uh, make sure that uh, the vaccine is accessible to folks in those communities that it's safe and it's effective and so um, hence uh, there was Quite a bit of prioritization to ensure a diverse uh, study population. Uh,
1: with the compromised immune
3: system. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, let me answer that as well. Yes, it included uh, folks with uh, compromised immune systems as well, and there is no contraindication. In other words, uh, it it it's not. Uh, there's no need to not be vaccinated if you have a condition that impairs your immune system in one way or another. Of course, we will continue, as I mentioned earlier, to watch very closely as we immunize, again, millions of people, we will continue to monitor very carefully because we can continue to learn. There may be rare side effects that were not apparent in the vaccine trials that we need to understand. But at this point, the only absolute contraindication is, is someone who actually has had a history of anaphylaxis to any of the constituents that are in the current vaccine.
1: Thank you. Uh, Dr. Kurian, what phase do dentists fall into and where can they go in LA County to get vaccinated?
4: It's a good question. Um, so we do recognize that dentists are also definitely at risk, especially, you know, based on the type of work that they do. They're right in there, right in people's mouths, uh, and um, often, they're you know, putting themselves at, at pretty significant personal risk to provide the services that they do. Um, so in terms of which phase they fall into, they do fall into phase one. But just as a reminder, phase one has a lot of different subdivisions in it. So within phase 1, they do fall under phase 1A and then within phase 1A, as I noted, we do have a couple of tiers. So yes, it's it's there's just a lot of levels to this because again, we have such limited doses that we do have to go through this very sort of refined prioritization of individuals based on their level of risk. So dentists fall into our third tier. Mm-hmm. 1A. So, in terms of what does that mean, when do we get to them, it's hard to say, but we're thinking probably uh, early into the the next year. So, most likely sometime maybe January or February. Um, Where do they go to get vaccinated? So, um, in terms of that, these are conversations again that we're going to be working very closely with our uh, dental colleagues Uh, We have a team of dentists within the department of public health that will be reaching out to to really uh, communicate with the dental community, understand what might be the best ways to reach reach them uh, to count them to understand how many of them are out there uh, and all of the other dental practitioners um, that are uh, that might be important to capture as well. So those conversations are, uh, are ongoing. Thank you. Dr. Simon, if there are
1: 80,000 doses that we receive, does that mean that 40,000 people will be vaccinated since you need two
4: doses?
3: Yes, that's exactly the case. Now, I will say, though, that when we receive 80,000 doses, we don't just vaccinate 40,000 and then hold the remaining 40,000 for the 3 week period to then give those people a second dose. We are anticipating a continued flow of vaccine. You know, the, the precise volume of vaccine we're going to get week to week remains a little uncertain, but we're pretty confident there'll be an ongoing flow. And so we're not stockpiling vaccine. We we get we give it as we as we get it. But it is true with the with the, the Pfizer vaccine and with the Moderna vaccine it's it's two doses needed There's at least one vaccine in the pipeline though that only requires one dose. And if that gets approved, that certainly makes life easier, but we'll have to see how that shakes out.
1: Thanks. Dr. Davis, my family lives in Florida. Will it be safe to travel once I get the vaccine?
2: (laughs) Uh, Great question. So we'll go back to what does the vaccine do? Um, So the vaccine was approved um, and and shown to reduce the number of people who got sick by more than 94%, you know, without causing any serious side effects. So as Dr. Simon mentioned earlier, um, preventing that severe illness, uh, you know, is what this vaccine, you know, has been authorized and what it applied to be authorized for um so it should uh, help uh in terms of you know definitely reducing that uh serious the risk of serious illness again what we want to see is um you know could you still be uh infected and transmit to others and not have symptoms that's something we don't know uh, at the moment and something that will be observed uh as the vaccine gets put out um so the safe to travel um you you would have more protection after having kind uh, of the vaccine uh, but I still think you're, you're still gonna need to have those face coverings on to protect your family um, if you're gonna be in close contact with them um, and that's allowed wherever you go uh, just until we, we understand exactly uh, that there isn't this ability to be infected, not have symptoms and transmit to others.
1: Thanks. Uh, Dr. Kurian, can you please comment on the communication efforts that will be used to provide outreach information education and vaccination services to the Latino communities of Los Angeles County?
4: So yes, we're very cognizant of the fact that we have a very diverse population here in LA County and therefore really a a need to make sure that we're messaging and communicating out to all of these diverse communities. Um, So, you know, as part of our communication strategies, our communications team is really working hard to make sure that A lot of our uh, messaging uh, that's on our web pages and other uh, tools are translated into multiple languages. Um, In addition, we do have a vaccine task force uh, that I alluded to earlier on in my opening remarks and so 1 of the committees on that task force is helping us specifically with issues around uh, having effective communications Uh, and so we'll be working with those members to really again identify the best ways to reach out to these communities whether it's through working through uh, community health workers or promotoras to get that message out uh, and help connect people to places where they can get vaccination and also just providing information.
1: Thank you. I know we um tested for COVID-19 at the um, CDU testing site, um, I think to date has been 120,000 people, many of them Latinx. And I think we have a mechanism for getting the word out that might be available um, pretty much across um, the county. And one of the things we learned is that using Um, volunteer faculty, volunteer students, community volunteers to really go out and talk to people uh, at the grocery stores uh, as they are out and about uh, made a big difference in the numbers of people who would come. And I think, again, because everyone doesn't operate quite in that mainstream healthcare network, as we know, uh, those are the kinds of um, Outreach efforts that I know we can rely on the county to to use. So thank you for that. Uh, that's very important.
4: Yeah, no, I'll just comment. That's it's very you know um, very important to sort of highlight is that oftentimes we need to use the leaders within these communities as sort of our vessel of communicating out messages. And again, I think um, that is one of the strategies that our communication team is really looking to do is identify who those. Prominent leaders within these communities are who are those uh, social media influencers that we can really tap into to kind of get these messages out um, to, to these communities.
2: Great. I just, I just want to add to that, you know, in many instances, um, they're also helping us shape the message, like this won't work for our community. Uh, and so we really do rely on that expertise to, to help us uh, fine tune the messages so that the, what comes across is actually what's intended uh, in terms of getting the message right.
1: So true, so true. Dr. Simon, uh, this next question is uh, for you um, coming from our chat. As someone who is in childbearing age, I worry that the vaccine might affect my ability to have children in the future. My question, what long-term effects are expected from this vaccine and how can I be sure it won't affect me in the future?
3: Sure. Well, that question can't be answered directly from the vaccine trials. And it's important to note that the vaccine trials studied people for approximately two months after they were vaccinated to identify adverse effects the good news is that our experience with, with virtually every other vaccine indicates that if there is gonna be an adverse reaction, it generally occurs shortly after the, the vaccination. And uh, it, I can't think of a single example, maybe um, others can correct me, but I can't think of a single example of where a vaccine adversely impacted fertility. Um, but of course, this is a new vaccine so, you know, we're, we 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 want to, you know, examine it in every possible way. So I I can't say with 100% assurance that there's nothing to worry about, but I can say that based on our past experience with other vaccines, it would seem to me that this is probably not not a risk. Thank
1: you. Um this question is for Dr. Davis or Dr. Simon. Uh, I hear a lot of misinformed or misinformation from many COVID deniers, but because my lack of knowledge in the sciences, I can never answer the question they pose. Even with technology, how can we have, how can we have found a vaccine so fast for COVID-19, but haven't found one for cancer, AIDS,
3: Etc. We need. Well, a <laughs> I, yeah, I, I can yes, I can begin, but I welcome Dr. Davis to to add. You know, it is interesting. There have been vaccines that have prevented cancer. So, for example, the vaccine against human papilloma virus, the HPV vaccine, has prevented thousands of cases of cervical cancer. So. There are, there are those examples. Now, HIV and AIDS is a really interesting one because that virus, HIV has been very challenging because it actually attacks the immune system in a very sneaky way. And so you're absolutely correct. We, we have not found uh, a way to vaccinate to, to protect against uh, HIV, but I would say that's, that's a very unique um, virus
2: yeah i would add um and for many cancers you know it's it's uh, uncontrolled growth um so trying to figure out you know what marker what thing you could do to to stop it you know makes it tough for cancer uh also for for hiv um there's a lot of genetic diversity uh in the virus itself and sometimes the virus hides from the immune system uh and you know and so it's it's difficult to try to to get uh, added in the same way as as some of these other infections that have been prevented with vaccines.
1: Thank you. Um, Next question uh, for Dr. Simon. How is this vaccine 95% effective when the vaccine for the flu is only 50% effective? And the second part of that question (laughs) uh, I would say is for both you and Dr. Davis, should I still get my flu shot? (laughs)
3: Yeah, you know, this is why we were so excited about the vaccine trial results early on we were expecting, you know, maybe if, if all worked out well, we would have, you know, perhaps 60% vaccine effectiveness. So the fact that two different viruses now, I'm sorry, two different vaccines have demonstrated this level of effectiveness is, is very, very promising. Um, you know the flu shot does have a lower level of effectiveness. It varies from year to year. It really depends on how well matched the vaccine that's produced that year is to the the circulating flu virus strain. But despite that lower vaccine effectiveness, um, if someone does get the flu shot and uh, becomes infected with influenza, they're a lot less likely to have severe disease. They're much more likely to have mild illness. So. We still do very much encourage people of all age groups. I believe everybody o- older than age six months uh, to to get the the flu vaccine each year.
2: Yeah, and I would say that we we um, towards the beginning of the year when, when COVID was first starting, we saw uh, people could be infected with both, uh, and so we 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 definitely don't want to to have that happen, especially as we have many 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 more cases of COVID nineteen uh, within the county. Uh, And then in terms of the effectiveness as well, again, I I go back to the viruses that mutate, Uh, the influenza virus mutates a lot. Um, And so that's where sometimes it doesn't match as well because the virus has changed um, from what it was circulating before.
1: So the next um, question, uh, Dr. Curian, we're going to get into your priority groups and, uh, and A through C. And <laughs> um, the question is roughly what percentage of county residents are in the priority one A through C groups? Uh, and if I can piggyback onto that, given the flow of vaccines that you're expecting, you mentioned a January, February dentist. When when do you project that <clears throat> any resident in the county who wants the to- will be able to
4: Yeah, so what we're predicting right now, and again, it's just sort of a prediction, is that we'll probably be at a point where it's open for the general public closer to, the spring or early summer, so it's gonna it's gonna be a, a little bit. It's gonna take a little bit of time. Um, in terms of percentages of county residents, uh, it's it's a bit hard to enumerate exactly how many people that's going to translate out to. And I think part of that is because um, we're still waiting. For example, this Sunday, the ACIP, which is the um, the committee that provides recommendations to the CDC on uh, vaccines, they're gonna be meeting this Sunday to kind of really flush out exactly who is going to be in that phase 1B and phase 1C categories, um, you know, to provide a little bit more detail. So after we get that extra level of detail, then we can start to work through what does that mean in terms of our county? How do we get that information out to those groups? And really have a better count of um, of what that those populations are going to be. Um, but I can tell you that right now we're expecting um, the proposed priority 1B is um, essential workers, and so that's a very it could be a very large group of people because this could include um, it could again we don't have the final details yet, but. You know, agricultural workers, teachers, um, sanitation, just a whole host of different um, uh, folks that are employed in some of those really critical uh, jobs that help to sustain and support our uh, society. Um, so again, it, it's probably going to be a very, very large part of our population, but we'll have more information very soon.
3: Can I just add one note about 1C, yes. which is the, the high risk groups. Um, if you include those 65 and older and two of the conditions that place one in a high risk group, one is high blood pressure, hypertension, the other is obesity. You're talking about at least a third of the overall population, at least the adult population. So we've already moved you know, well into the general population um, and we'll clearly have to prioritize within those very broad groupings.
4: Yeah, I think that's going to be part of uh, part of the really um, hard work. I think that's going to be coming up in these next weeks. Is just really deciding how we're going to break out these very large groups um, into uh, into these various categories and prioritization. So I think you know even though we've got you know kind of a very complicated phase one A with you know, multiple tiers within that, it's probably going to be even more complicated as we move into phase one group. And again,
1: I think one very important factor um, as you try to prioritize within groups to keep in mind is those neighborhoods and zip codes with higher mortality rates. I think that is just such an important way for us to respond to um, this pandemic and do things a little bit differently um, because the data show that we should. Um, but I, again, I, I thank you for the work that you guys are putting into figuring this out for us. Um, it is complicated. Uh, the next question is for you, Dr. Davis. Um, the, the First, others may chime in. Um, my dad is not sure he wants to get the vaccine. What should I say to him? He is a smoker and has heart issues.
2: He needs to get it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just, yeah, that, that's the first thing. Um, so you know, we go back to um, you know the data. Um, you know, one we there are a lot of infections at the moment, and when we look at the most serious outcomes, and which is death. Um, ninety three or uh, percent of of the population who dies that we're able to identify uh, their underlying health conditions, uh, or whether or not they have them, are people with underlying health conditions. So someone who does uh, have heart disease and smoking doesn't help uh, for a number of reasons in terms of respiratory illnesses. Uh, but you know it really is is that um, he is more likely to have serious and severe complications from this infection uh, than others. Um, I do want to note that even seven percent of the population who is deemed as healthy also die. Um, so everybody should be getting this uh, in order to protect us all—not just ourselves, but to protect the ones around us.
1: I think this is um, just such an important uh, question because you know some of the surveys suggest that healthcare workers. Uh, People in you know black and brown communities, um, others who feel marginalized by this society, are really reluctant to. You know, I was surprised by the data on healthcare workers, but I do think we have to um, get the information out um, and just continue to support um, you know those who are getting the vaccine and their uh, influence on their friends and family. Um, it really is going to boil down to making people feel safe and um, getting the word out. Uh, Well, one issue is insurance. And Dr. Curian, the next question is for you. Will people who have no insurance be able to get the vaccine?
4: Um, So the short answer is yes. Um, There is no cost to the individual to get the vaccine. Um, there, there is a um, administrative fee that the vaccine providers may be able to charge to the insurance. Um, but, you know, even for those who are uninsured, the vaccine, there is a, uh, a relief fund that the vaccine providers can actually apply to uh, to get reimbursed for that administrative fee. So for the individual who's actually getting vaccinated, there is no charge. Phew. That's
1: good. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's very good to know, uh, Dr. Simon. Do you anticipate this vaccination being added to California state vaccinations required for schools and childcare? When can schools get it? And and who do you think should require it? Can employees, uh, I mean, employers uh, require it? Um, What's the thinking there?
3: Yeah, I think it's too early to try to predict what the policy might be. (laughs) I mean, I think we really don't yet have a good understanding of how this infection is gonna evolve over time. Is it gonna turn into something like influenza? That's sort of a a yearly sort of phenomenon. Will it mutate over time? you know, I think in terms of who should be vaccinated, um, we're particularly concerned about teachers. um, And I think they will be uh, in this phase one B, no question and probably will be prioritized fairly high up because we know how important it is to get schools back open. And I think one of the great barriers is, is really teachers not feeling safe justifiably. So, so uh, I think, um you know certainly they'll be prioritized in terms of future vaccination if there you know is a need if it's determined there is a need to vaccinate children to protect them and to protect others step 1 is to make sure we have a vaccine that's safe for children and and again that those studies still still need to be done
1: Thank you. you. So we are uh, winding down. I'm going to ask the last question and then ask each of you as you answer it to give us your um, closing uh, remarks. And we'll start with you, Dr. Simon. The First, I mean, the last question is, when will this all be over? (laughs)
3: Sort of the million-dollar question.
1: Million-dollar question.
3: I would be very skeptical of anybody who answered that question with certainty. Um, my hope is that 2021 is going to be a heck of a lot better year than than 2020. I don't think we're going to see uh, the light um, early in the year, but I'm hopeful that if we are successful in uh, in in uh implementing this mass vaccination campaign by the summer months uh we we could be back to a more normal or what we consider a more normal way of life but i think it remains to be seen though what the residual impacts will be uh, over time
1: thank
4: you so i'll i'll echo exactly what dr simon said in the in the fact that You know, there's just, there's so much um, uncertainty still that exists uh, as we kind of, you know, we're still working with vaccines that are under these emergency use authorizations. So we're still learning about um, how these vaccines are going to function sort of in a real life scenario. Um, We're also sort of still uncertain about how many people are going to really accept vaccine and choose to get vaccinated. All of these things, I think, are going to play into how long it's going to get to before we get to a point where we're back to the old normal. Mm-hmm. So I think you know we do sort of exist in this new normal, um, A new normal will continue to change and evolve as we start to roll through this vaccine effort. Um, but yeah, I think there's you know it'll we're yet to we're yet to see where this ends. <laughs> Dr. Davis.
2: <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna be more more positive on this one. So um, one, it, it could be much better than what it is right now, if more people were following the public health recommendations and guidance. Again, wearing your face covering when you're around others, keeping your distance from people you don't live with, uh, making sure your hands are clean uh, as you, you're going to eat and, and drink and do other things uh, on your own, um, and really staying at home as much as possible. For those of you who do have to go to work, maintain and adhere to those protocols that you're required to follow and your employer is required to follow if you're open. That will lower our case rates as more people do that, not just at work, but in the community. So Maybe going and visiting the neighbor or hanging out in the neighbor's backyard, let's not do that right now. <laughs> um, let's, let's get through this period of time. Um, Let's get more of these immunizations, these vaccines um, into the community and and into more people uh, inside of our county. And those two things together will get us to a place where we can open up more of our economy, get more people back to work, uh, and get our kids back to school um, sooner rather than later. Um, So please do that, uh, and we can get uh, to a more normal space than where we are now.
1: So thank each of you. Um, This has been very, very helpful. And um, I thank you not only for your participation in this um, town hall, but for your work. I think as a society, what we've learned is that leadership matters a lot. And we are thankful that in the County of Los Angeles and at the Department of Public Health, uh, we have you working on this. Um, So uh, you won't hear the applause uh, from the audience, but know that uh, you are appreciated. And to the audience, um, please take care of yourselves and take care of your family. You know what to do. Good night.
0: This episode of L.A. Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at L.A. Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the LA Public Health Podcast.